right? <laughs> it's not very often I'll put one of these things on, but when I do, uh, I feel I'm on life support or something. You know? <laughs> I hope you're on life support. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah? You've been supported by the life of Jesus Christ? Amen. I'm glad. In that case, I don't need to say, say anything, do I? <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Let's get rid of that one for a minute. Uh, I'd just like to read from Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 34. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'll share in a little while why I've chosen this particular passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Or an alternative to that is a single cubit to his height. (laughs) More about that in a minute. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of his own. Amen. I've got one thing I want to say this evening. I want to say it very clearly. There is a God in heaven. I thought I might get an amen out of that. I will say it, I will say it once again. There is a God in heaven. That's what, that's it. I know you believe it now. Good, yeah. But there's a lot of people in the world who don't believe that. And if there's one reason why the world is in absolute chaos at the moment, it's because they've forgotten that there's a God in heaven. God does not exist as far as they're concerned. And so if God's thrown out the window, then the devil comes in very quickly. And we've seen that happening in this generation. Um, But just because people say, well, there is no God, doesn't mean you say that he's suddenly packed his bag and gone to the other end of the universe. He still is in heaven. And uh, I was thinking of the, the earlier of the Flat Earth Society. I believe it still exists. Um, but people years ago believed that the earth was flat. But that didn't stop it from being around. And just not believing in God doesn't get rid of God. He's still there. Um, And I say that, and what I've read, one or two things I want to share about that. Um, I look back on my life, and as I look back, I can see that there have been certain way stations through my life when God has spoken a little word that has given me some understanding of who he is, that he is there, and who he is, and his nature, and so on. Um, and that's surprising in as much as I was born, yeah, I was born, uh, into a family. My father was a pagan. My mother was a non-believer. My brother, who was younger than me, died without Christ before me. Uh, never knew whether he gave his life to the Lord or not. I look around all my um, uncles and aunts which we had quite a few, and cousins, not a single Christian amongst the whole lot. And I was brought up into that sort of situation. And it makes me wonder sometimes, how did God, why did God choose me? And I think of that lovely verse in um, Ephesians chapter 1, where... Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, you were chosen before the creation of the world. And I thought, what? Before the creation of the world, he had me and you in his heart? I thought, wow, that is quite something. Uh, I hadn't discovered that until later, you know, a bit later during my teens. But uh, what a wonderful thing to know that even before God thought about the world, as it were, he had you and me in his mind and wanted to create a place for you in his heart and a place to live. That's wonderful. But we do live in a non-Christian society. Um, And I came from a non-Christian background. But how did God first speak to me? I could go right back 
to the age I went the age of five I started in infant's class and uh, um, the first thing they do is they teach you to write and then they teach you to read and the moment I could read books I was a born again bookworm I really uh, loved books and I had a friend who lived just across the road from me a school friend and he had something that I greatly coveted his father had bought for him a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, the children's edition. And there they were on his shelf, all lined up, book after book, full of everything from A to Z, from Aardvark to Zululand. Um, and I used to go across and I saw these, and my eyes popped out, all this knowledge. Um, and I said, can I borrow one? And he said, yeah, sure, you know. So I took one across and started going through it. And it was, it's all, it's, it's the Encyclopedia Britannica, but at the children's level. It was really terrific. I've not seen one since. I don't know if it still exists. I'd love to have a set myself. You know? <laughs> um, but one day I was thumbing through, and I came to E, and I saw the word eternity. And I thought, what's that? And I, I had a feeling it was something to do with God. It may have been at school we'd heard about the eternal God or something, I don't know. But I thought, I'm going to find out what that is. And it gave a little illustration. And I have heard that illustration actually from this pulpit a couple of years ago, so I'm going to say it again. And reading their interpretation of the word or their explanation of the word eternity was... Um, Imagine a great rock, a hundred miles long, and a hundred miles wide, wide, and a hundred miles high. And once every hundred years, a little bird comes fluttering along, sharpens its beak on that rock, and then flutters away again. After all that time, when that rock has been worn down to the size of a grain of sand, one second of eternity will have passed. I remember my reaction to that. Wow. I understood something of the nature of God, something of the nature of eternity, and because of that, something of the nature of God, that God is the great I am. I was what I was. I am what I am. I will be what I will be the first and the last, the omega and and, and the alpha and the omega and all that. And it just comes up time and time again, doesn't it, in the the scriptures. But I understood for the first time, and that was about the age of six or seven, something of the nature of God. And I never forgot that. And I remember that little story almost verbatim right to this very moment even. Um, And I just felt that, um, yes, I've... From that moment, I never disbelieved in the existence of God. And I thank God for that, just that one little thing to start off with. Um, Then, um, yeah, after that, I went through the schools and finished up in a grammar school. Um, And I passed my exams and went to this grammar school and we were given all sorts of... uh, 
wonderful new lessons like biology and chemistry and blowing things up with it, you know, and uh, all, all those wonderful things that little boys like to do. And uh, uh, French and Spanish, I loved French and all sorts of things, new things that we'd never learnt before at the other school, mathematics. And, uh, but one other thing that they had, which we'd never had before, was RI, religious instruction, which was Christian in those days, not mixed up with all sorts of other things, uh, and religious instruction. And the very first task that we were given by the master, by the RI master, was to learn this passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 34. And we had to learn it by heart, and we had a week to learn it in, and he was going to test us on it when we got back. All right? And so I learned it. And as I went through it, some of these lovely um, truths that Jesus here was talking about uh, just really spoke to me too. And I remember thinking at the time, and that time I was 12 going on 13, um, I still had that sort of basic belief that there was a God. Um, but I, I began to think, this Jesus, I didn't fully know who Jesus was, but this Jesus was a, quite a guy. He really has some truths there. And verse after verse just began to speak to me a little bit, <laughs> especially the bit where he says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Six times he says, don't worry about this, that and the other. Um, and uh, there was one worry I used to have, and that was the fact that I was so small. I was always the smallest guy in the, in the class. Um, now I find myself the smallest guy in the church. <laughs> Nothing's new. Um, and that was always a bit of a, a worry for me, because I, I, I never... I thought, well, at the age of 12, 13, you know, hormones are beginning to change and these girls that used to be like green frogs suddenly became like princesses, you know, and you began to feel, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to find someone as a girlfriend or a wife who is my size? I don't really want to be shackled to someone who says, hello, darling, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, you know. Um, so my lack of height, I won't call it my height, my lack of height was a, a big worry for me at the time. And I tried all sorts of stretching ex exercises and I actually grew half an inch, but an hour later it had gone again. So, um, <laughs> uh, and I was almost desperate in a way. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I went through my school and I passed my exams and I um, then... I had had a wonderful desire to want to become a surgeon. And I mentioned it to my mum, and one day she said, but your father wants you in his business. He was a professional photographer, and uh, he wants you in his business. And I sort of meekly thought, oh, well, that's that. And I went, left school, and I joined him in his business. He had a studio, a professional studio in town, and um, at the same time, all my school friends were ditching their bikes and buying motorbikes 
because this is a sign of growing up and being a man, you know. And I similarly, I didn't want a dirty old motorbike. I wanted a clean-looking, popular Vespa scooter. They were becoming very popular at that time, and they still are now. I, 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 my heart goes, oops, sorry. My heart goes like that whenever I see a Vespa, you know. And my father said, well, I'll buy you one. Um, so you can use to get round in photographic assignments. And so I bought one and learned how to drive it. And uh, uh, then uh, one evening I went to a little party at a friend's house. And uh, uh, it was uh, just lemonade and crisps and listening to records. And I was the one who provided the record player and some of the records. Um, and uh, we had a good time together, and there was a young girl there, um, and she was just my height. Uh, so I just sidled over and started to make conversation with her. And um, at the end of the evening, I said, um, how are you going to get back home? And she said, well, well, get on the bus, I suppose. I said, well, I've got a Vespa. You can come on the pillion with me. I'll take you home. Oh, she thought that was a good idea. From there, I asked her out uh, for the following day. I'm, I'm telling you all this. You know, I hope you're interested. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I took her, took her out the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and we were an item for several months. And I just, I was smitten by her. She was my size. She was a nice girl, just a job, happy, carefree, and. Um, and then one day she started cooling off towards me and she had to admit that she'd found someone else and she wanted to go out with him. Oh, no. So I was thrown into a bout of teenage depression and it, was, it really was. And one day I found myself outside of a little Anglican church in our area and I decided to go in, and it was during the day, the door was open, I went in, and I sat in the pew, I was the only one in the church, and I, I, I cried out to God. I said, God, I don't know whether you're there or not, but will you give me a new girlfriend? <laughs> My first ever and most selfish, self-centered prayer. Well, I went out and got on with the rest of my life, kept on thinking about the girl that I'd lost. Uh, but anyway, in the meantime, I had found out that there was such a thing as a Vespa club in Portsmouth, as there were in many other places at that time, uh, where people who had Vespas came together and had a social evening and then went out for um, long um, runs at the weekend on a Saturday or Sunday. And um, so I became a member of this club and after a little while, they actually made me secretary of the club. And at that point, I thought, we need to get more people into the club. So I decided to have a sort of an evangelization campaign uh, for Vespers. Um, so I got out a little leaflet, uh, come to our Vesper club, we meet such and such a time, we do this, we do that, we go places and so on. And each of the members took a number of copies. And wherever we saw Vespa in town that didn't belong to the club, um, we 
take a leaflet and put it under the little saddle strap that went over the Vespa uh, and hope that someone would come. Well, one day I was looking out of the window of my father's uh, business and I saw a Vespa just outside. So I went out with a little leaflet and put it under the saddle strap and went back in and got on with work. A few days later, I saw the same Vespa there again, so I went out and put another little leaflet. <laughs> um, a few days after that, I saw it there again, so I went out and put another little leaflet under there. Um, anyway, a little while after that, we were having a club meeting on one evening, and uh, I was, uh, uh, there's only about uh, 12 or 15 of us there, and uh, I was standing over in this corner, and over in that corner was the door. And one of our club members came in, and uh, uh, behind him was a young lady. And uh, I saw her. Now, you've got to believe this bit. The moment that I saw her, without even knowing her, I heard a voice deep down inside saying, There's your wife. So I went, I went over to her and said, hello, my name's Brian. What's your name? She said, Rita. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, welcome. Uh, welcome to the club. Um, how did you find us? She said, well, I kept on finding a leaflet on my... <laughs> I said, where were you parked? She said, Arundel Street. Oh, where... Yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell her it was me. <laughs> But God obviously moved ahead. And, uh, well, you know, you can guess what happened from then. We fell in love. And uh, eventually we got um, engaged. And uh, I was just about getting ready to... um, We were thinking about getting married within a few months. And one day a brown envelope came through the door with OHMS written on it, on Her Majesty's service. I knew what it was. It was my call up for going to the RAF for two years. All young men, most of them had to do two years in the Army, Navy or Air Force. I had had an interview and I plumped for the Air Force and they gave it to me. And I thought, oh dear, going to have to put our marriage on hold for a couple of years. But uh, anyway, I, when Her Majesty calls, you've got to go. So I said, okay, I got on a train, and on a very um, cold January morning, I uh, got on this train and I went up to a place called REF Cardington in Bedfordshire, which was to be a uh, kissing out place. You were only there for one week before moving on, but uh, long enough to just learn what an officer was, and you had to salute them every time you saw them, and you had to learn to march left, right, left, right, get get everything all together all at the same time, all this business. We just had one week in which to learn the basics of that. Um, but uh, at the end of the first day, um, we were shown into our accommodation, which was a, a what they call it's an area, it was a billet, it's a long wooden hut, and you go up, usually off the ground, you go up three steps, 
into the door. There's a little room that side, a little room that side, and then a big area with beds all down that side and beds all down that side. Probably take about 18 people, something like that, in one billet. That's what it's called. And uh, I went in um, with about sort of 18 other authority dejected people. Uh, and I went in and I looked around and I thought, well, some, something in me wanted to be near the door. So I thought, I'll take the second bed on the right. And I dumped my stuff on there. And there were all these other beds uh, down both sides, a little pot-bellied stove in the middle for some heat. And uh, I went, out, went to the second bed on the right. Well, later on, other lads were joining us, and someone came in and took the first bed on the right. And uh, I said, oh, hi, uh, I'm Brian. He said, oh, I'm Joseph. And we got talking, and he seemed a nice little lad. And uh, he said, um, at one point, he said, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. I thought, oh, well, yeah, it didn't mean much to me. You know, I'd say, well, I believe in God. And, um, and we talked a bit. And uh, he just told me he was a Christian. That's all. He didn't uh, push me into anything. But, uh, and that was it. Well, we were just there for a week. And then we were posted then up to Bridge North in Shropshire for what we call square bashing, learning how to properly march and uh, obey orders and fire Bren guns and run at sacks with bayonets and charge and all this business and on little exhibition expeditions out into the countryside and it was a hard time and it was in the middle of winter and we were camping out in, in a field in the middle of winter can you understand that um, and uh, but I got to Bridge North, we all went by train and we were getting off at the station and um, we were sh shown to our accommodation which again was the standard um, billet uh, with your beds down there, beds down there, pot-bellied stove and uh, Joseph was taken to another billet and, and uh, so I didn't see him very much from then on but we were there for eight weeks but I went in and like I did before I put my goods, my kit bag and everything on the second bed on the right. A guy came along just after me, took the first bed on the right. I said, I'm uh, Brian. He said, I'm Robin. Um, so, that evening, I noticed he got down on his knees to pray before getting into bed. And I thought, weird. <laughs> um, and he said, yes, well, I'm a Christian. And this went on for two or three nights. And I watched them. And he said, you believe in God, don't you? I said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you come and join me when I pray? You get on your knees and pray. I think God was giving me my first challenge. But I got down on my knees. And I was feeling quite embarrassed and very shy. And I don't know what I prayed. I think the only prayer I knew was the Lord's Prayer anyway, so I probably just prayed that. But an amazing thing happened. All the hubbub from the other lads in the, in the billet, which were, you know, about 16 or 18 of them, it all went quiet, which almost in, 
increased my embarrassment because they're all looking at me. They're all behind me. They're all looking at me. Um, but that was the first test that God gave me. But he provided a Christian in that bed. Well, we did our eight weeks. Um, all during that time, Joseph came across, found out where I was and said, look, um, we're having a church service in the, um, the camp cinema. Uh, I'm going to go. Will you come with me? So I said, yeah, I haven't got anything else to do. Um, it's either be in the billet or go out. We weren't allowed off the camp or anything. So I went to this church service in the camp cinema. And there was uh, about a dozen lads in the two, two uh, rows of seats at the back. Great long void of empty seats. And right at the front was a Salvation Army officer uh, who led the service. And he preached the gospel. And I hardly remember a thing that he said about it, which most people say. Um, but at the same time, I felt my heart strangely warmed in the, to coin a Wesleyan face. Um, and uh, I turned to Joseph. I said, I feel I'd like to go forward and give my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, will you come with me, Joseph? He said, no. I've, done my, I've made my decision. You're on your own. I thought, thanks a bunch. <laughs> With knees like jelly, I went down to the front. And I don't know who was more surprised, me giving my life to Christ or the Salvation Army officer who thought, someone's at last, hallelujah. (laughs) Uh, But uh, anyway, that that marked the beginning, if you like, of the Christian life, although there was absolutely no follow-up whatsoever. Um, no one there to disciple me or anything like that. It was just me and the Lord and whatever he popped into my heart and whenever it was. And uh, so, anyway, our time came to an end then. And I was moved up to, uh, from there, down to Hereford. They were going to make me into a shorthand typist. I had wanted photography, but they said, you've got to sign on for five years to get that. I thought, I'm not going to do that. Uh, So they made me a shorthand typist, a very short shorthand typist. Um, Incidentally, I'm I'm taller. I've got got my wish. So I've always wanted to be four inches taller, and I've I've got one now. (laughs) I I mustn't move. (laughs) Um, And uh, anyway, I went to... uh, arrived at Craddon Hill at Hereford and uh, to the main gate and they said yes your billet's over there I went over to the billet Um, I was the only one that went in there at that time I was the first one to arrive so I had the choice of beds so I chose the second bed on the right other lads arrived and then a guy came and put his stuff down on the first bed at the right and his name was Peter, Peter Dupuis, a very posh French name. And I thought, oh. And uh, anyway, it wasn't long before, guess what he said? <laughs> Come on, guess what he said? <laughs> I'm a Christian. And he really was. He was a member of the Scripture Readers Association, SASRA, and this sort of thing. And uh, we had a lot of good conversations, and he helped me a bit, and God just took me a little bit further on in him 
Um, and I was actually able to help him out on one or two things because he was so good a Christian. He had this girlfriend, and he said, "How long?" I said, "How long have you had her?" Or oh, oh, several months. And I said, "Is she nice?" And he said, "Yeah." You've given her a kiss? No, I haven't kissed her yet. I said, "What? You've been all these months and you haven't given her a kiss?" Well, I didn't think it was right for Christians to do that. Well, I put him right on that. And the following weekend, he came back. It had a lovely weekend. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, right or wrong, you know. Um, but anyway, so anyway, Peter helped me with that. And I came to the end of the course. Well, it was a three-month course, but it was such a lovely place. It was out in the country, and it was summer. And I had the option of staying on for another three months and take advance shorthand and typing, which I did. I thought, well, better to be here where I know and I'm not too far from home rather than being posted somewhere else and, and uh, not being able to get home. So um, anyway, my posting came through and from there I was posted right across country to Grantham in Lincolnshire to a place called REF's Spitalgate. Um, I never found out what Spitalgate was, but it was a very famous airfield during the war. Um, and uh, I arrived uh, at the camp gate, um, or rather before that, I got on the train, went all the way across uh, to um, Grantham Station, got off. And I thought, well, I have the foggiest idea whereabouts REF Spitalgate is. Um, and... Uh, but a voice behind me suddenly said, where are you going, airman? And I turned, and there was this, I can only describe her as fabulously beautiful young lady in an RAF um, officer's uniform. And I was, it's an officer, and I was trying to salute her with having her normal bags. And she said, where are you going? I said, I'm RAF Spitalgate. I, that's all right, I've got transport there, I'll take you there. I thought, thank you, Father. <laughs> it provided, and I got into her car, and she took me up and left me at the gate. And they showed me uh, where my accommodation was, which, with the winter coming over, uh, coming on, as it was, and being in the east of the country, which gets colder than Bath, uh, I was very grateful that we weren't in cold wooden billets anymore. They were brick blocks, um, um, centrally heated and everything. And I thought, oh, this is nice. And I went in there, although I was further from home, but it was a good, easy way to get to. And uh, we still had to put our wedding on hold for a while. Uh, so I settled in there. And we were, I was allotted to a room which had five beds in. And there were sort of one, two, three, four, five beds. Four of them were already occupied by the staff that were already there, the airmen. And the one that was free was the second one on the right. As you go, <laughs> you've got to believe it. I don't tell porkies. I don't make this up. A guy came, well, they all, the other four came back. Um, and uh, from work, uh, from their office, and the guy in the bed next to me, in the first bed, his name was his name was Brian. I said, oh, I'm Brian. He said, oh, I'm Brian. My name's Brian Little. 
which was a ridiculous name for him because he was about six foot two. I thought, well, if anyone should be named Brian Little, it should be me. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, and as I got to know him a few days later, he said, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. I thought, this is weird. This is almost spooky. It's as if God is following me from camp to camp and providing the way, which, of course, he was. Um, but uh, anyway, we had some good conversations together. And then one night, I was on, I was put on switchboard duty. Everyone had to have a go on the switchboard um, and have a night duty just in case any signals came in from anywhere else during the night. So I settled down and hoped that I could get a good night's sleep, even though I was just in a chair right by this switchboard that no one bothered to explain to me how to work it. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's not likely to anything to happen in the middle of the night. Suddenly, <laughs> what's that? It's a little light. Oh, what do I do? What do I, I sort of plugged something in there because I'd seen that on the film. Do you plug in there? and just hope, hello, oh, is that RAF Spitalgate? Yes. Um, this is, uh, remember the name of the place? <laughs> yeah. This is RAF Innsworth at Gloucester. Um, take a signal, please. This is very urgent. So I was tem- trembling, you know, just trying to find, find a pen and paper, and, and the signal went like this. SAC Brian Pratt report to RAF Innsworth, Gloucester to assess suitability for SDO posting. I thought, that's me. Posting? Oh no, not another posting. I'm just settling in here. Anyway, I had a date which I had to go to RAF Innsworth at Gloucester to assess my suitability for SDO posting. I went to the CO the following morning to deliver the, uh, the signal. And I said, excuse me, sir, what is an SDO posting? Oh, he said, special duties overseas. Oh, no. Ah, and I went there and I thought, where are they going to send me? And I went there for the interview and he told me that it was a special duty posting. It was special duty because there were no NAFI facilities. It was a small unit. There would only be five of us there and a couple of officers. Um, and there would be extra um, money uh, because of the lack of facilities and that sort of thing. And uh, he said, but it is a voluntary posting, so you can turn it down if you like. And I was just ready to say, no. When uh, once again, I heard a voice, felt a voice right there that just said, go. And I found myself meekly saying, yes, I'll go. And so I went. And I found I was posted to the uh, British Embassy or attached to the British Embassy in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. And uh, I got out there and uh, I got to the airport, which was 20 miles outside of Ankara itself. There was no one there to greet me. 
I thought I had the foggiest idea where, where to go. And uh, so I thought the only thing I can do is to get on the airport bus and go into Ankara. And, but what do I do when I get there? It's a big city. I got on the bus and other people. And one by one, when we got to the city, he dropped all the other people off. And I was the only one left on the bus. And he said to me, uh, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I said, I am in the Royal Air Force and I've been posted here. Oh, Royal Air Force, I think I know where you go. So he took his bus all the way around Ankara and finished up in front of this uh, hotel. He said, in there. And as I walked in through the door, another guy walked towards me. He said, who are you? I said, I'm Brian Pratt. We weren't expecting you till tomorrow. (laughs) Well, thank God for... Uh, a guy who drove the bus, you know, God provides all the way through. Um, well, we, I was in a hotel for a little while, but then we were just on the verge of moving into a luxury block of flats in the very good part of the city, um, just underneath the presidential palace, and in the where all the embassies were. So it was in a, a, a posh place. And we had the, a double flat across the top, at the fourth floor up, across this, um, uh, this block of flats. And uh, in one side there were two bedrooms, and this side there were three bedrooms, and a couple of very large dining rooms and lounges and that, and really luxurious compared to a, a little cold old billet. Um, and uh, there were, so there were four other airmen there, plus me, and we moved into that. Uh, this time I had the last one on the right and there were sort of th- two there and then three there and I took the last one on the right. Uh, but the guy in the room next to me, uh, his name was Dick Large and uh, we became very good friends and yeah, he turned out to be a Christian. <laughs> the only other Christian there. Um, and... Uh, uh, I was thinking about it afterwards, long time afterwards. I thought, do you know, God's got a sense of humour. In the last two places that I stayed at, that I was posted to, the two people were named Little and Large. <laughs> Only God can arrange a thing like that. But all the way, you know, um, so I spent 20 months there. And in actual fact, I did manage to take three weeks leave uh, and I came home and on the first Saturday, um, I celebrated my 21st birthday, uh, which pleased my parents. And on the second Saturday after that, we got married in that very, in that very same church where I prayed to God. So that really, basically, from then on, you know, we got married and moved to another area and uh, met a Christian family and they really knew God. They were Pentecostals, you know, glory, hallelujah, Pentecostals. Embarrassingly so, this quiet guy. But he taught us all about Jesus. And uh, we went to a Baptist church there and that was the start. That's where I got baptized. 
And that was the start of a real Christian life. And uh, I was just uh, so, so wowed by how God looked after me. All that time it just gently led me on and kept me going. Just go another step, another step. And uh, uh, just going back a little bit, the one thing I did worry about, going back to that reading where he said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. The one thing I did worry about was my lack of height. Would I ever find a girl, you know? And God provided a girl. And she, well, she was two inches taller than me, but that didn't seem to matter too much. <laughs> she was the right girl. And she had one-inch heels anyway, so when she took them off, she was, she was almost my height anyway. Um, bless her heart to see her now with the dementia. She bent over, and she's about there to where I am now. Um, but um, So that's the story of how the Lord kept me. And uh, looking around, I don't think there's any unsaved here that I know of anyway. No, but uh, I was going to say, if you were... There is a God in heaven. And I can assure you that there is. Amen. I chose for us to sing the last hymn. What was it? 22. Yeah, that's right. Um, I love it because I love the first line of it. All the way my Savior leads me. And uh, so if we could just sing that in closing. Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, all the fall For every trial feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, though a spring of joy I see, or the rock before me. Though a spring of joy I see All the way my Saviour leads me Oh, the fullness of his love Perfect rest to me is promised In my Father's house above Reclothed immortal Wings its flight to realms of day. 
This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the Father, I do thank you that you are a God who leads us all the way, right from the, cro- the cradle through the cross into your heavenly mansion. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.